Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, as many of you know here at Vox, we value diverse voices and we intentionally make space in our homilies for different voices, both within and outside our community. And so this morning, uh, we're honored to have with us uh, Rebecca wheeler Waltson, um, and she works with the Impact Movement, uh, which is a ministry that serves Black students across the country. Uh, I met her a couple months ago when I participated in the story workshop uh, for racial trauma and healing, uh, which is put on by the Allender Center, uh, where she's also connected with Sam Lee. And so I personally found uh, her teaching and her experience uh, so meaningful, uh, just especially as I've been navigating my own journey of, of racial identity and healing. And so she's joining us uh, from Virginia this morning, and we're grateful that she will be opening up the scriptures with us today. So welcome, Rebecca. Good morning, Waylon. It's so good to see you again and to be with the Lees, Sam and Carol, and a few others in your community that I have had the opportunity to meet. And I feel very much like I've been invited into a community this morning. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. So as Wayland said, we're going to take a look at the book of Nehemiah this morning. And before we start, I want to just touch base um, about a discussion question. So the title of the homily this morning is Jewish Lives Matter. Jewish Lives Matter. And I'm sure that that phrase evokes something in all of us as it's been a phrase that's been in the news often over this last year. And so as we step into the text, the discussion question is, um, even as the country is this week engaging the trial of Darren Chauvin, the police officer on trial for the taking of the life of George Floyd, and much of the country is pondering the phrase, Black Lives Matter. My curiosity is what does that phrase evoke in you? What comes up for you when you hear the phrase Black Lives Matter? I'll take just a few seconds for you to maybe comment in the chat or ponder in the quietness of your home what that phrase has come to me for you. Again, of the trial that's happening this week and also aware of the violence done against the Asian American Pacific Islander community in the, in the state of Georgia um, and, and the increase and the rise in anti-Asian violence um, in, in the face of the national pandemic. And so I, I find myself wondering if my faith is solid enough to meet this moment, which causes me to ask, what is it that Jesus might have to say to us in a moment such as this, um, regardless of who or, or what community we come from or how we came to be in this country or our ancestors came to be in this country, what might the text have to say to us as we face the things that we're facing today? And so the story comes to my mind of Nehemiah. And so just by way of context, um, you, you'll remember that the, the, the Israelites were split into two, into an a, um, upper kingdom and a lower kingdom. And the kingdom of Judah is carried off into captivity by the Babylonians. They are conquered in a war 
um, and they are carried off into a foreign land to live in captivity, to live as slaves, to live as the spoils of war, as a second class citizens in a foreign land. I would guess that the culture is profoundly different than what they knew in Jerusalem that the language is different, the food is different, the customs are different, right? And, the, and they're in this space, not as equal citizens, but as a people who have been conquered. And then Babylon falls to, the, to Persia. And so now you have a community of Jewish people living under Persian rule by King Artaxerxes. And this is where we meet the person of Nehemiah, who is cupbearer to the king, which means that he's a government employee high up in the cabinet of the king. And it is his job to bring to the king uh, his wine, his food, to spend, spend time in the halls of power. You can almost see him if I, if I were to move this to, to modern day America, uh, walking around the Capitol, walking through the halls of the White House, engaging the president and, his, and the first family on a regular basis. And it, I think it's important to note that although Nehemiah is a Jew, he's never actually been to his homeland. He was not born in Jerusalem was not raised in Jerusalem. His entire life has happened under captivity in a foreign land. And just before we pick up the story of Nehemiah and his engagement with King Artaxerxes, a couple of things happen in the political landscape. The first is that the King of Persia issues an edict, passes a new law, signs a new executive order, that declares that it is now legal for the Jews located in Persia to return to their homeland. If you will, he changed the immigration policy by executive order. And yesterday, what was illegal for a Jew to make his way back to Jerusalem, today is now legal and permissible. And so we pick up Nehemiah after there's been one scholars speculate maybe two waves of Jews that have started to return back to their capital city in Jerusalem. And scholars even um, speculate, the, the text will later tell us that Nehemiah's older brother, Hananiah, was in one of those waves of Jews who went back to their capital city to, to see the state of things there. And it is in this place that we pick up the story in Nehemiah 2. And so we're gonna move uh, to that text now, right? And so the words of Nehemiah. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with a certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those that had escaped the captivity about Jerusalem. And they replied, the survivors there in the province 
who escaped this captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So the thing that I ponder as I read this is Nehemiah's concern, his inquiry into his people, the Jews. And I'm mindful of the fact that Nehemiah has never been to the capital city of Jerusalem, that he was born and raised in a land that is foreign to his ancestors. And yet he comes into this story profoundly connected to his Jewish culture. Right. I've always been taught that the story of Nehemiah is a question of of leadership, that this is a story about a young man finding his voice in his faith and that this what we need to do is identify with Nehemiah and um, learn what we can about what it means to lead in difficult times. And I'm going to ask us for a moment today to set aside that sort of framework for this story and to ponder, right, a different way to come at this text, right? Is it is it possible that this text has something to say to us in a moment of racial tension and racial violence in our country, right? And can you almost hear the, the kind of racial tension and racial violence that was part of Nehemiah's world? That, that the 24-hour cable news cycle is talking about the desolation of the city of Jerusalem, that the capital city of the Jews has been destroyed and that as a people, they are in great trouble and they and there's great shame brought to them as a people for they're living in captivity under the rule of, an, of another power. You can almost hear the cable news stories there. And so I, I'm just aware that Nehemiah comes to the space clearly understanding he is a Jew in a foreign land. And and how many times have we been told as Christians that orienting ourselves in our ethnic and racial identity, whatever it is, is somehow contrary to the gospel? That somehow I've been asked to set aside my identity as an African-American and forsake it for for the purpose of identifying myself as a Christian. And yet the text here seems to honor Nehemiah's ability to embrace both his faith as a Jew and his ethnicity and his race as a Jew and what that means for him in proximity to the Persians. The second thing that I note about this this particular text is um, is it is is the state of the Jews and how that impacts Nehemiah. So if we move to um, chapter two, verse two, right? It's the next day, and Nehemiah has moved from a conversation with his brother to his job. He's at work, and he enters the presence of the king to do his job as a cupbearer. And the king says to him, "Why is your face sad?" since you are not sick. This can only be sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, may the king live forever. 
Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors' grave, lies waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So we're going to move from a moment of focusing on Nehemiah as, as an exiled person living in the land of captivity and focus for a moment on the king who, who in my mind represents the majority culture. And what I notice here about this member of the majority culture is first, the king says to Nehemiah, why is your face sad? And so it occurs to me that the king is paying attention. He's watching the people that are in proximity to him and looking at their faces and noting what he reads on their face. And what he read on Nehemiah's face was sadness. For his next words are, since you're not sick, this can only be sadness of heart. And so I, I wonder, in, in, in a day when the news is filled with details of the Darren Chauvin trial, of anti-Asian hate, of the massacre that took place in the city of Atlanta, in the state of Georgia, against our Asian American Pacific Islander brothers and sisters, have we stopped to read each other's faces? Have we simply stopped to notice what it is that we see in the countenance of those that are in proximity to us? And what do we see there? Is there stress, anger, anxiety, tension, despair, grief, sadness. And then Nehemiah said, may it please the king, may he live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my ancestors grave lies in waste and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Again, Nehemiah fully in the room in his identity as a Jewish man. Why should I not be upset? My people are, are in danger and our capital city is in disrepair. And the king's immediate response is to say, what would you ask of me? Essentially to say, how can I help? What do you need? What will serve you in this moment? And so not only does he stop to read Nehemiah's face, not, and not only does he inquire, you know, what is it? But he, isn't it interesting that his immediate response is, what can I do to help? That he ponders in his mind, in his heart, what resource what leverage, what power, what voice do I have that could make this situation better? And so have we done that as we watch what unfolds in the country? Have we stopped to ponder how it is that we might step near 
to someone who we love, who we care about, who goes to church with us, who lives in our neighborhood, who are friends with our kids? Have we stopped to ponder what it is that we might do to walk with them in the midst of these difficult times? Well, you know the story. Nehemiah says to the king, here's what I need. I need um, safe passage. I need um, construction materials to do the work. And I need some time off work so that I can go and see about my homeland. And I find it interesting that not only what the king did do for Nehemiah, but what he didn't do. Because as king, he could have simply said, you know what, I'll send a construction crew down there. I'll send my best structural engineers and we will rebuild the wall. Give me 30 days and it will all be done. And, and that isn't what happened. Because somehow the assignment to, to engage the work of restoring the community and rebuilding the wall was given to the Jews to do amongst themselves for themselves on their own behalf. And yet the king as representative of the majority culture has a role, a critical role to play in that space. So just mindful, right? That Jesus will give each of us different roles. God will have different lanes for us to walk in. And yet both need to happen if the work is to get done. So then we're, we're going to move a little bit uh, to, um, to later in the story when Nehemiah starts on his journey. So chapter 2, verse 10. When Sanballat the Amorite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard these things, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And Nehemiah said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruin with, with it, and its gates are burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. And I told the people how the hand of my God had been gracious and the words that my king had spoken to me. And the people said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. And when Sanballat and Tobiah um, and Geshem heard of it, they mocked and ridiculed the Jews saying, what is it that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I want to just move to sort of the third set of players in this text, right? First, it was Nehemiah and, and representative of the exiled people. And then the king, the emperor, if you will, the representative of the majority culture, right? And now you have this, this third, this, this group of guys who really are sort of like, eyewitnesses to the story unfolding, right? And I note that in, in, in verse 10, right? Scripture records that these three guys are displeased. Some translations say angry, that someone would come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Can you almost hear the critique from um, the crowd about um, why are you protesting? Why are you even talking about this? Why, why are you always bringing up race? 
And yet we know from earlier in the text that it honors Nehemiah's concern and his grief for his people. And the text honors his desire to see that rebuilt and restored. Right. And yet we have these three guys who are angry. And then as we move through the text, you see that their anger turns to ridicule and their ridicule turns to mockery. And they actually set themselves about mocking the Jews as they build. And if we move through the story, as the Jews continue to rebuild the wall, by chapter four, we see these guys again. Um, so then Sambalot heard that, we're mo- that we were building the wall and he was angry and greatly enraged and he mocked the Jews. And he said in the presence of his associates, the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and and burn ones at that? And then Tobiah and the Ammonite who was sitting beside him said, the stone wall that they're building, any fox will come upon it and break it down. Right, so now if you look at this, we have moved from a couple of guys who are angry and having conversations amongst themselves to them spreading it across the city, across the Samaritan army, right? And and they continue to ridicule and mock the Jews for the work that they're doing, right? And then if you keep reading in verse 10 of chapter four, right? Judah says, the strength and of the burden bearers is failing and there's too much rubbish so that we're unable to do the work on the wall. And our enemies have said they will not know or see anything before we come upon them and we will kill them and stop their work. And then the Jews who lived near to them came and said to them, from all these places where they live, they will come against us. So now we have moved from a couple of guys who are angry that someone would see to the well-being of the Jews to, to, to a story that's taken on a life of its own, right? To, to a couple of guys being upset to, to where, and mocking, where mockery becomes a conspiracy. And the conspiracy starts to seep itself into the psyche and the mindset of the Jews, such that they have moved from, and the people were ready to do the good work, in early in chapter two to we cannot do this work. There's too much debris. There's too much rubble. There's too much coming at us. Can you hear how um, as this begins to spin out of control and a narrative begins to cement around the Jews that um, they're not strong enough to do this work and that the work itself is actually Um, a rebellion against the king, that it begins to affect the psyche of the people who are called to do the work. And how often have we found ourselves in that position, knowing in your heart of hearts that you've been called to engage your community and and, and feeling the the weakness and and the moment of, I'm not sure we can do this. 
and, and the wanting to stop and to give up because of what swirls around us in the public square. And I, I have wondered about my Asian American brothers and sisters in the last several weeks, how they must be feeling as they have to engage the massacre that happened in Georgia, as, as they have to navigate their way through, um, through the anti-Asian hate that has come as a result of the pandemic. For every time that someone has referred to it as the China flu, how that word must hit and cut. And I, I wanted in preparation for this service to, um, to engage that story, to learn the details of what happened in Georgia, to, to, to hear and to read and to ponder the names and the lives of people who lost their life in that massacre. And I haven't been able to do it yet. I, I've tried multiple times this week to, to pick up my tablet and to scroll through the, the stories and to, and to engage the space. And I simply cannot get my body or my mind to absorb or metabolize that story partly out of fatigue, um, partly out of um, just a sense that it's going to be too painful. And so I'm, a, I'm aware even of the luxury that I have as, um, as, a, as a Black American to, to set that story to the side because I'm not Asian American. And so I don't, I don't feel some of the same sense of compulsion that some of my Asian friends feel at knowing and understanding the depth of that story and what it means. And yet I have a sense from this text, a question for myself. Um, where would I locate myself in this story, right? Am, am I to identify with Nehemiah? And, and his grief? A am I in the position of the king in this story um, as a member of another ethnic community? And do I have resources at my disposal that could come to the aid of, of some of my Asian American friends? Or would I, would I have I located myself closer to Tobias and Sambalat? And guess them, and have I simply looked on um, and not engaged, or engaged in a way that actually made it worse and brought harm? Have I somehow joined and aligned with the theories of the day about what that story is actually about? This text asked me to ask those questions of myself and to ponder how it is that I might actually engage both that story and, and my story, what's going on in my community even this week. So even as we close out and we look at those three sets of players in this story, right? My, my question in terms of reflection for all of us is where would you locate yourself in the story, right? Do you see yourself closer to the exiled people, the Jews, Nehemiah, what about 
the majority culture that is in power, the king, the emperor, if you will? Are you closer to him? Or perhaps the eyewitnesses of Sambalat, Tobias, and Geshem? Are you closer to someone looking on to the story? And how will you engage it? What will you do with it? And even as we ponder what is happening in the country today, in the Asian American community, uh, in the African American community, in the Latino community, um, with, with the immigration policy and the kids at the border and, and the debate around the wall, in the Native American community, as, as, as they engage um, their invisibility in this country. Um, what response is the spirit stirring in you as you engage this text? A blessing that I like to offer as we close that was offered to me over the summer um, when the Black Lives Matter protests were at its height that I received from a dear friend who is uh, Caucasian American and who loves me deeply. It's called blessing in a time of violence, which is to say this blessing is always, which is to say there is no place this blessing does not long to cry out in lament, to weep its wounds in sorrow, to scream its lines in sacred rage, which is to say there's no day that this blessing ceases to whisper in the ear of the despairing and the terrified, which is to say there's no moment that this blessing refuses to sing itself into the heart of the hated and the hateful, the victim and the victimizer with every last ounce of hope it has, which is to say there is none that can stop it, none that can halt its course, none that will still its cadence, none that will delay its rising, none that can keep it from springing forth from the mouths of us who hope, from the hands of us who act, and from the hearts of us who love, from the feet of us who will not cease our stubborn, aching, marching and marching until this blessing has spoken its final word, until this blessing has breathed its benediction in every place, in every tongue. Peace, peace, peace. Amen. <laughs>